Partika would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of this land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and this season we're talking all things environmental. Today I'm joined by Abby Rogers, environmental economist who translates science into money. She stopped by to help explain just how much people are willing to pay to conserve the environment. Welcome to the podcast, Abby. Thank you. (laughs) What do you actually do? Right, so I'm an environmental economist, which is probably a job title that most people don't stumble across in their lifetime. Um, So what that really means, I guess, is uh, about how we capture the environment, whether that be impacts or ways that we can manage and protect the environment within our economy. Um, So particularly in developed nations, uh, Western democracies and so on, Organisations, private sector and public government organisations are always really focused on the financial bottom line. Um, It's not that they don't care about other things, it's just it's really hard to ignore those dollar signs. And the problem when it comes to managing the environment is that most things to do with the environment are not within a marketplace. We don't buy and sell a koala (laughs) in the same way that we buy food, clothes or a car. So we need to be a little bit more creative about the ways we integrate those environmental values into our decision making. Like you said, that's quite a kind of a bit of a niche. Mm. How did you end up in that role? Yeah, um, well, that's an interesting question. (laughs) To be honest, I just fell into it. (laughs) So um, back when I was studying my undergraduate degree, which was actually a Bachelor of Science in Natural Resource Management, and that was at UWA, Within that sort of first year, we started to take some economic courses. And what I really started to understand there is that, you know, I've I've always been quite passionate about the environment and want to find the ways that we can best manage it and and protect our wildlife and so on. But recognising that, you know, people like to do things, consume things, and we have growing populations who are going to have increasing needs. We need to grow food somewhere. We need to build houses somewhere, all of those sorts of issues that we need to find the ways to balance that. And economics is a a really useful way to integrate all sorts of information together and manage that information and to be able to prioritise the way that we use our natural resources, basically. Going from studying science and then Mm. doing some economics in there, What's that like? Is it, does it feel like you're switching the side of your brain or is it quite similar in some ways? Well, yeah, quite similar really. So economics is known as what we call a social science rather than the other more traditional forms of science like our biophysical sciences, ecology and engineering and all of those sorts of things. But it's actually, and it's a social science because it's about the study of people and mm. their behaviour. Um, but it's actually very quantitative, so mathematical and so on, statistical. So in that sense, it's not that different to a lot of the statistics that you would use in scientific-based approaches anyway. Um, so we, we tend to work quite well with scientists um, and, and we do that a lot. What happened when you finished your undergrad? Yeah, so this is where I really fell into the, the job that I've got now. Um, Within our degrees that we used to do at UWA, you had an honours year um, that was built into the degree. And so that was my first sort of um, 
invitation into research and uh, completed a research project and I really enjoyed that. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the mm. end of that year, um, but my supervisor at the time encouraged me to apply for a PhD in environmental economics. I was also applying for jobs as well. Um, I got offered a job and got a scholarship to do the PhD wow. and decided that I would just stick around at uni for a bit longer and, and do the PhD. Uh, and I didn't come from an academic background, so I was the first person in my family to actually go to university and, and get a degree. Um, so I had no idea really what doing a PhD meant, yeah. or what sort of a job I would get out of it. Um, but I was enjoying myself, so, so I just kept going with it. And yeah, that was how I ended up where I am. I, yeah. I started working in this field of environmental economics and then just kept working in it. <laughs> yeah, and then ended up going back into the university. Yeah, so um, technically I never left. Oh. <laughs> I, I started working there when I was still finishing my PhD and, uh, and then ended up with um, a postdoctoral position and have just, you know, worked really hard to keep bringing funding in and, and keep projects going. With environmental economics, why was it created? Is it quite a new concept or has it been around forever? Uh, well, I mean, forever in the sense that I suppose um, economics has been around for a long time. Yeah. I think it probably started to take hold, you know, in around the 1950s when we started to have a stronger focus in the economics discipline on what we call public goods, which are things like clean air, for example. So public goods are things that people can use for free and more than one person can use them. Um, so they're what we call non-rival and non-excludable. So I'm breathing in the air in this room and you are too, mm -hmm. and I can't prevent you from doing that. <laughs> sure, just straight which I promise I won't do. Um, so that sort of started to gain a bit of momentum then. And certainly in the last few decades, grappling with issues like climate change and those sorts of you know big grand challenges that the world faces environmentally economics has become increasingly important. How do you figure out the cost of something like climate change? Yeah, sure. That's so um, you know, climate change as a, a big scale issue is, is really hard to, to figure out what the total cost of that would be. Mm. But in terms of breaking down, you know, particular issues or understanding particular impacts, we have a range of different methods in economics called non-market valuation, which is where we, we look at these things that we don't buy and sell, but we ask people questions and try to understand what would you be willing to pay, for mm. example, to um, protect a bit of native vegetation that's important habitat for some wildlife or something like that. And we can yeah. ask people, we can construct these hypothetical scenarios and ask them what they'd be willing to pay to do that. That then puts that you know, non-financial value into what we call willingness to pay or a mm. dollar, a monetized metric. Popping into your ears for a second, willingness to pay isn't just a tool from environmental economics. It's actually a tool used in economics in general. Generally, it's used to see how much a consumer would be willing to pay for a product. So this has been adapted to work in environmental economics. Once we've got everything in a consistent metric, we know how much people are willing to pay in dollars to protect that koala. We also know how much people would be willing to pay for a house that was built on developing that land. We can start to compare, um, you know, is that land more valuable to protect and conserve oh. or is it more valuable to develop for some other purpose? That's fascinating. And so do you present that kind of information to local government? Yeah, yep. So we, we work with... Um, 
anyone you can imagine, really. So we work across private sector industry and all, all three tiers of government. When do you think was the moment of inspiration that you thought, yes, this is what I want to pursue? Oh, I'm not sure if there was a moment yeah. relating that back to the part where I sort of just fell into this. Um, yeah. There probably wasn't just a, a tweak. But uh, I think it, you know, the field just really appeals to my sort of rational side and very practical side. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm really quite passionate about the environment, but I recognise that we've only got so much money that we can spend on protecting the environment. And we've also got other really important things. We need to look after people's health and, and other sort of public issues as well. So at some point you've got to admit that you can't just go and do everything to fix the environment because we just don't have the resources for it. Mm. So, you know, how do you then break that down and decide out of the limited financial resources we've got, Mm. you know, where do we best invest those to generate, you know, the best environmental outcomes? Yeah. And when you refer to those kind of that the money that we do have, is that so like money that the government has or us as individuals? Yeah, so um, typically when we're talking about environmental management, it's often the government and that money comes from you know, tax revenue and things like that. But increasingly we're seeing sort of private sector businesses getting involved in this sort of thing. Um, so some of them do simply care about their environmental outcomes. Others obviously make the connection between what they're doing to the environment and how people perceive yes. their actions in the environment, which is what we call social licence to operate. Um, and so obviously from that perspective, you know, we see the resource sector giants and things like that obviously trying quite hard to make sure that they offset their environmental yes. impacts and, and those sorts of things. And so increasingly we do see those private sector companies investing money in environmental projects as well. Mm. That just, it's really filling in a gap in some things I was wondering about. So thank you for that. (laughs) When you're looking at, say, a landscape or maybe a species, I'm not sure exactly how it works, how do you pick what it's worth? Like what's, what's the actual process? Right, so so this comes to that non-market valuation approach. It depends on um, what the thing is that we're trying to value. Uh, so, for example, if it's a, a particular place that people like to go and visit, um, we can look at, you know, whether they'd be willing to pay an entry fee or something like that to, to actually enter. So our national parks now, we charge a lot of fees for entry into those mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And that, that helps us to benchmark what the value is for that particular site. A lot of the time, though, we're dealing with, um, you know, threatened species, for example. And it might not be that somebody actually wants to go and cuddle a koala, but <laughs> they still care about koalas. They don't want to see them, you know, becoming extinct as we see more catastrophic fire events and those sorts of things. Um, and so they still value that the existence of that species. So in that case, we use these survey-based approaches where we basically set out as realistically as possible some of the impacts that things like koalas might be facing, some of the, the policy or management levers that we might be able to pull in order to try and protect those species, mm. um, and, and then ask people, you know, what would you be willing to pay to actually achieve this particular outcome? And so it's very hypothetical, um, but we try to ground that in as much reality as we can to get the most truthful responses out of people. And from sort of asking those sorts of questions across really big groups of people um, across Perth or across WA or across the country, we can work out what a population is willing to pay to protect something. Is it, and I mean, you might not have the answer to this, but are you usually like 
oh, that's quite a lot of money or people aren't, people are pretty stingy, they don't really <laughs> want to spend anything? No, so um, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that because one of the things that we often come up against so that people, particularly sort of your environmental NGOs or, or other sort of, you know, very pro-environmental people can be a little bit apprehensive about using economic frameworks because they're worried about converting everything into dollars and thinking, you know, well, I know how important this particular animal is to, you know, the functioning of an ecosystem, but the rest of the community doesn't. So mm. why would they value it? And that, you know, we don't want to use economics because it'll, it'll just ignore it and it's, it's not going to be protected if we do that. What we tend to see when we do these surveys are that the general community are actually pretty smart and clued on. And although they might use different words to describe ecosystem function and those sorts of things, they get it yeah. <laughs> they understand the importance and interconnectedness of everything and they do want to protect it and so we tend to see quite large values come out of these things and certainly large enough to compete with you know the the value of some major development or something like that um, so I think that really we need to sort of flip our thinking and try out some of these frameworks a bit more often because a lot of the time they'll probably come out in favour of protecting the environment. Would you say that's a bit of a misconception of the industry is that people are maybe a bit like, oh, they only care about the money, it's not actually about conservation? Yeah, and I think that that's, well, it's a misconception, I guess, of um, non-economists, I guess, that yeah. economics is very focused on financial value. And mainstream economics does mostly deal with markets. Um, but environmental economics in particular deals mostly with that non-market space. And economic frameworks are fully equipped to embed those things together. And, you know, as I mentioned, in, in these developed societies where your decision makers are all looking at that financial bottom line, mm. they do consider environmental information as well. But it's very hard to trade that off against mm. the dollars yes. if they're put forward in a different metric or a different way. So being able to consolidate everything in, in the one metric, you know, money speaks to people, if we can convert the value of those environmental things to a monetary value, it makes it a lot easier to, to trade off whether we should be doing some sort of project or policy to protect the environment yeah. or whether we should be, you know, maybe in this case, allowing a development to go ahead. You're almost like the interpreter between yeah. the conservation and what it means yeah, in terms right. of Yeah, that's right. And it's not to say that you don't still need sensible just people making yeah. the ultimate decision, but economics is basically a, what we call a decision support tool. It's, yeah. a, it's a way of integrating information and understanding it to help guide the decision process. How do you find that kind of communication with stakeholders? Yeah, it, um, I mean, I guess that what we tend to see is that usually when we go and talk to someone and explain how these approaches work, um, that it's, it's all quite okay and they understand that. I think that some of those broader, well, there are, there are concerns about the broader misconceptions and understanding of economics and what that means. And I think a lot of the time, for example, government might be a bit worried about, you know, if they rely on some of these approaches, how do they then communicate that to the community mm. in terms of the information they've used in their decision processes? So it's not so much that the people within the decision-making process themselves are worried about the approaches. They, you know, we're able to explain it to them and, and they're quite comfortable with it. It's more that next step of if they then have to re-explain it to someone else yeah. without us standing there next to them to help in that process, yeah. do they feel confident enough to do that? Mm. Um, and I think that's that's just an area that we're still working on. Yeah. Do you ever have to kind of help and explain? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we do. Um, certainly, you know, a part of our job is 
to carry on, you know, we'll, we'll do a project, work out what the value of something is, maybe integrate that into what we call a benefit cost analysis where you weigh up all the benefits and costs of a particular decision or a set of options, you know, make some recommendations about which ones are worthwhile doing, um, but then there's often a process, that's the end of the project, but often for months afterwards you're, you're still engaging with, you know, that government stakeholder or that industry stakeholder just about how they use that information, whether yeah. they've interpreted it the right way and those sorts of things. So there's lots of different ways that people uh, engage in activism and try to, you know, conserve ecosystems. Mm. Do you think, compared to, say, protests or individual change or just, um, I guess, ad hoc conservation, do you think this is the most effective way? Well, I mean, I think that they've probably all got a role to play. Um, obviously, some of those, you know, advocacy protest type roles, they really do get people to stand up and pay attention. Um, but at the same time, they can be quite, I guess, perplexing. They might put other people offside because of the inconvenience around those activities. Um, I think that, you know, economic frameworks are good in terms of being... I guess a really transparent way of interpreting information. Um, assumptions are always made in any type of scientific modelling. You have to make assumptions, so it's never giving you complete certainty about mm. an outcome. But you set out those assumptions, it's very transparent. You understand what information is in there, what information is not in there, and what that means. Um, and I think that the other benefit of it is that it tends to be as long as the approaches are, are sort of implemented correctly, it's representative. So it moves away from that advocacy kind of, um, I guess, you know, opinionated voice, which is important, but might represent a minority mm. of the community. Um, what you try to capture in these economic frameworks are representative preferences of the community. Yeah. So that you actually understand, you know, what does the whole of Perth think about doing this, this type of project or whatever it might be. Mm. And that's a really important piece of information for decision making. Um, you still then need to think about equity implications. Um, so it may be that, you know, some particular project benefits people overall, but there might be a minority group, for mm. example, who's, who's disadvantaged by that particular policy or program. And so that still may not be ideal. But through these processes, you can at least identify who those groups of people are yeah. and, and then, you know, take that information on board as well. Yeah, it sounds like a really, like, good tool to kind of change it from apples and oranges to being all on the same all apples. playing field. That's, yeah. it. That's exactly what it tries to do, is put everything into the apple basket. Yeah. And um, it tries to do it in a very objective way. So we try to remove some of that subjectivity out of some of the processes, other processes that might be used to inform decision making. Thinking about climate change in particular. Mm. I'm assuming the cost of climate change is expected to be very high. Mm. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, good. So, <laughs> I so. Absolutely. Um, and it's quite interesting. Um, my, my colleague and co-director of our research centre at UWA, David Panel, has just written a paper with um, another professor over in Canada looking at the, I guess the relationship between sort of what's happened in environmental policy and what's happened with COVID-19. Oh. And so it's quite an interesting um, comparison in that you think about the way that globally, most nations, there are some big ones that maybe are an exception, but most developed nations have responded quite swiftly and with quite extreme policy measures mm. to try and protect people, lives and the economy from the impacts of COVID-19. Um, and you know that's warranted and justified. But then you see environmental 
challenges like climate change where there's been so much inaction and government leaders are just reluctant to take a big step and, and take some big policy initiative on that. Um, whereas when you think about it, the longer term potential impacts on lives lost from natural disasters as a result of climate change, on the economy through lost productivity, you know, is probably going to dwarf COVID, you know, by a long shot. I guess that the issue is it's, it's over a longer time horizon and it's not, you know, I guess it's harder to associate it directly with those lives lost. Mm. Um, but it's an interesting comparison. Yeah, because it does have that similar level of it needs that high level organisation yeah. and decision making yeah. to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I mean, on, on costs of climate change, just as an example, one of the areas that I've been working in is around uh, coastal hazards. And so, you know, the erosion, sea level rise, those sorts of impacts that, it, that are associated with climate change. And, um, you know, there's been work done purely on looking at the cost of, um, you know, damage to infrastructure that we expect will happen between now and 2100. And, mm. you know, it's hundreds of billions of dollars. So, and that's in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just built infrastructure. That's not taking stock of those non-market impacts that, that we would expect to be extreme as well. So, yeah. yeah, significant. Do you think that individuals should be concerned about that cost? Because, and maybe you can clarify this, I've heard about how some insurance companies are struggling to, or choosing not to, maybe, I'm not sure, uh, cover certain things. Uh, natural disasters that will happen because of climate change. So do individuals need to be worried about that cost falling on them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one way or another, it will impact individuals and, and their hip pocket because whether it's through insurance or simply the fact that, you know, the more storms we have, the more bushfires we have, the more drought we have, it affects all of our produce. Mm. So the cost of fresh fruit and vegetables, of all of your, your crops that go into producing bread and other things, it's all going to get more and more expensive unless we start to do something about it. Um, and obviously that becomes a twofold problem in that you need to mitigate and try to sort of reduce the climate impacts, mm -hmm. um, but then also adaptation. So we know that whatever we do now, we've sort of overstepped a mark yes. and we're still going to have to deal with this. So what, what are the solutions in this changing world? If we do the right things in the long run, say as of tomorrow, we start doing have better policies for climate change in order to reduce some of the impacts. Uh, will, as a society, we have, is it more expensive? Would we expect to be paying lots of money? Or overall, would we end up saving money? Yeah, well, I guess that that's, you know, a, a question that you can't answer until you look at what are the solutions that you're planning to mm. try and implement. Yeah. Um, but certainly there are some, you know, and, and we're trying to come up with some new solutions in this space and be quite creative with this concept of what we call circular economies, which is where we become less wasteful in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we, we try and, you know, generate one resource out of some activity, but then from the byproducts of that, use that to generate something else. And so there's a whole lot of different novel ideas out there. And one of the things that we, we're talking about a lot is in the space of um, habitat restoration or enhancement, particularly in the marine and coastal environment. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, we've, we've got a lot of degradation of our marine habitats around Australia's coastline. Um, they're in a pretty poor state and climate change is making that worse. Uh, we also know that a lot of those habitats, as they die, things like seagrass emit carbon back into the atmosphere. Yes. So we really want to look after them and keep them in the ground, in the seabed. Uh, 
And so there's a lot of research from the science angle about how we can go about restoring these habitats and do that well. And then we need to think about, well, what are the benefits of this? What can we actually do to promote investment in those mm. activities? And if we start to think about these from a very sort of holistic systems-based perspective, um, they actually in some cases can be, we think, profitable. So if we're putting back, um, say, a shellfish reef or something like that, it has the ability to obviously improve the environmental habitat mm -hmm. um, of the area, which is great for the natural ecosystems in that area, but also you might be able to have some aquaculture projects associated with that. You can, you know, farm shellfish on it. You might provide more habitat for commercial and recreational fisheries in the area. You might also be able to, um, what we call sequester carbon and nutrients. So obviously with shellfish, they're filter feeders and they, they strip out you know, nitrogen and other things that come running off from the land, the agricultural products that, that are produced and things like that. So all of those things together actually become really useful. Now, if we can set up markets to buy and sell those, yeah. you know, the, the nutrient, what we call offsets or the carbon offsets, mm -hmm. so that other private sector industries who are producing carbon can invest in yeah, okay. producing these habitats to help offset their impact, um, then we end up with a situation, it might be very expensive to put that shellfish reef back in if you just look at it from one perspective, like its environmental benefit. But if you look at it from the potential fisheries benefit, the aquaculture potential, the offset potential, yeah. um, you know, maybe you get some recreational dive side out of it, all of a sudden you've got something that actually spins off quite a lot of different benefits and, and might actually be worthwhile doing. It might actually turn a profit rather than just be a costly exercise. Yeah, I guess it shows how you have to have kind of an understanding of both the long and the short term effects. Yeah, that's right. And um, certainly in the economic frameworks, it's something that we do take into account. So obviously the value of having money to spend and do something with now is worth more than you know, having to sit and, and keep that money and not be able to spend it for another 20 years or something like that. And, you know, that's reflected by interest rates in the mm. bank, as an example. And so when we're doing these sorts of evaluations of different environmental programs, we do acknowledge that often we're investing a lot of money up front and we're not going to get the benefit of that maybe for another 10 or 20 years down the track. Yeah. So we do, we do take that into consideration. Um, and it really comes down to just using those frameworks to you know, look at a whole range of different options. Which ones are going to give us benefits sooner? Which mm -hmm. ones are going to give us the maximum benefit? How much do all of those things cost? We're going to jump across to some of our questions from the rest of the Particle team. Uh, if anyone's listened to past episodes of the podcast, I've always struggled with finding a name for this. We finally have a name, Questionable Questions, because sometimes <laughs> they are genuinely questionable. So, Fair enough. <laughs> and setting that tone perfectly is the first question. What has a higher cost, a cyclone or a volcano? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know because okay. I haven't estimated that, but I'm going to guess probably cyclones just because they're more frequent and they tend to come across more heavily populated areas where you've got people, you tend to have more costs. But that, that's a guess. It's <laughs> ah, a good guess. That is a very good guess. Why does it sometimes feel like rich people, people with a lot of wealth, aren't particularly concerned about some of these effects of climate change like rising sea levels? Mm. Yeah, um, well, I think that comes down to probably accountability and the lack thereof. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, there's, you know, we need to use, this is where governments are really important. Um, you know, some people argue for free markets, but the, the, the whole point of having environmental economics as a discipline is to recognise that a lot of environmental issues are what we call externalities. They mm. sit outside the marketplace and often the people who cause the impact are not the people who pay for the impact yes. or, you know, vice versa, the people who have to pay to try and fix something might not be the beneficiaries of that. Um, and that becomes an issue and that's where governments are really critical because they have the regulation that they can put in place to manage those things. And that, you know, that really relates back to that point that we need to see stronger policy initiatives to actually deal with that. And they might be things that take place in a market like carbon pricing, mm. um, which would cause some of those big, rich global companies to, to actually fork out a bit more to yeah. cover the cost of their externalities. Yeah, yeah. that makes um, perfect sense. And plastic pollution is a, another good example yeah. do you of think, where we could do that. Yeah, do you think both plastic and carbon could really use some kind of cost on it? Yeah, yeah. And so there are some um, really big thinkers like the Mindaroo Foundation who are actually looking at those exact types of ideas uh, around, you know, how can we get plastic producers to pay mm. a little bit more for the cost of new plastic production. Um, and if we start to increase the cost of new plastic production, that means that comparatively, we actually have recyclable technologies for all types of plastic, mm. but some of them are so expensive and, it, and it's expensive to collect and recycle the actual product itself. But if we start to make the production of new plastics more expensive, it makes some of those recycling technologies look more attractive. And so eventually you can even that out. That makes sense. That's, that's the idea. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of takes some of that responsibility off the consumer and puts it back on the person that's made it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, you know, no doubt those companies are going to filter those things down the line. But if you take a company like Coca-Cola, that's going to mean, you know, maybe a couple of cents yeah. for a bottle of Coke that you yeah. buy for the individual, mm. um, but helps to cover the cost of what would be quite a significant cost to them as a levy on plastic production. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about a plastic, yeah. plastic kind of cost or tax before. <laughs> what would you say in maybe in WA or Australia, if you have an example for that, is the most valuable kind of landscape? Oh, wow. I mean, that's a tough one. And I think that comes down to the individual and their preferences. Um, you know, personally, I, I love the coast. So, you know, it's the beach for me. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely <laughs> agree. And finally, we often ask people, would you rather work with animals or people? But for you, we have a different one, which is, <laughs> would you rather work with scientists or economists? Ah, oh, well, um, I mean, to be honest, I spend most of I was going to say definitely animals. <laughs> I, could, I can answer that. We'll take I'll answer that as both. A third answer. <laughs> um, no, but we, we spend a lot of time working with scientists, um, particularly in our centre. We're very applied and, and try to work across disciplines, if you like. So, yeah, I really enjoy that. You know, my background was originally science, uh, and, and yeah, I, I like the idea of being able to translate or understand how the economic research works with the scientific research and what that means at the end of the day in terms of impact on the environment. Do you think some scientists, do they have any kind of apprehension to making that conversion? Are they ever like, no, this is my science just for the science? Yeah, we, we tend to see kind of, I guess, two camps of thought in, in the scientific discipline and particularly in ecology. And I would say probably the majority, at least, you know, might be a bit biased, it might just be the ones that I work with have this perspective and maybe I'm missing the other ones. Um, 
but we tend to see that most of them are actually quite keen on this idea of being able to evaluate um, environmental impacts mm. in, in monetary terms because they understand that without that bit of information, a lot of environmental impacts are missed from decision making. They're, they're talked about, but they're not really thought about mm. <laughs> when, when you know, key decision makers have to make an ultimate decision about what they're going to do. Um, so I think for the most part, they see the logic in that. Um, there are some who really believe in this concept of intrinsic value, which is the value of um, a plant existing for its own existence. It's not the value that we place on the plant existing, because yeah, okay. that we can capture in economics. Yeah. It's purely the value of the plant, it, its own value for its yes. own existence. And that's not something we can capture in no. an economic framework. Um, and that's a, I mean, that's just a really interesting philosophical debate. Um, if, if people weren't here, would it matter if the plant existed? Yeah. I don't know. And we're <laughs> always know. putting a certain level of human understanding on yeah, top of that as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's a that's a I guess people who really believe in that concept of intrinsic value really struggle with the concept of yes, using economics. Because they're kind of the opposite. Yeah. I mean economics is, is you know, it's a human based perspective. What are some of the skills that you think you need to be good at your job? Hmm. Well, I think that particularly in our field and in a very applied part of our field, I'm really glad that my background was in science originally because, you know, it enables me to bring that perspective and understanding to the process. Um, you know, I think having a very practical approach to what we do, again, because we're very applied, this is, this is quite specific to, I guess, our centre. I mean, in research generally, it's okay to be a bit blue sky and, and think about some really creative, crazy ideas, mm. but our particular centre works very much in applied space and wanting to have an impact in decision making. So having a very practical mindset is important. Um, you know, sometimes you have to make trade-offs between how accurate information might be versus how accessible that information might be. Yeah. For example, there's no point putting something that's, you know, ridiculously complex on the table in front of um, someone in government or a private sector organisation who really just wants to get out the key points of should I do this or shouldn't I yeah. do this and what does that mean in terms of impact or, or whatever it is. So I think, yeah, having that scientific background as well as the, the economic understanding has been really helpful and having that practical element, that practical mindset. We've talked quite a lot about economics. For me, that always, in my head, involved a lot of maths. How good at maths do you actually have to be? Yeah, you need to know how to do some maths to be an economist. Um, as I said, it's a very quantitative discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all about statistics and, and numbers. So, um, yeah, you, you need to at least not mind doing some maths and yeah. have some pretty good understanding of it. And we do get this question a lot, um, as I mentioned, coming up through a science degree, and I wasn't trained originally as an economist, that was okay because we did a lot of statistics in that science okay. degree. So it's really about having that statistical um, capability. And then once you've got that, you can sort of, you know, start to relate that to economic theory. Yeah, the base understanding yeah. first. On the flip side, what is an unexpected skill that you've picked up? Balancing things. <laughs> So, I, you know, I guess this is something that you probably don't really know until you embark on an academic career, exactly yeah. what that involves. Um, you know, I've taken 
rec leave three times this year <laughs> and <laughs> failed miserably at the first oh. two, for example. I worked right through them. And then on the third attempt, I went down to Pemberton and to Yelling Up and stayed in places where I had really poor Wi-Fi connections. So, so I could actually be on holiday. Yeah. Um, so that was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think you, you develop a bit of a multitasking skill set, which I probably didn't realise I was, I was going to develop. Yeah, mm. and maybe that's another skill you probably do need. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it if you don't like multitasking. Yeah. <laughs> and to finish up, I would love to know what your favourite fun fact you've ever learnt in your area of expertise mm. is. Fun fact. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I tend to work in a space that's actually quite concerning <laughs> in terms of you know dealing with environmental impact. Yeah, that's impact. completely fair. Um, but I think maybe a fun fact is is actually something that I just experienced right at the beginning of my career, and it relates back to one of your questions about sort of how big are people's willingness to pay for protecting the environment and things like that, and the concerns that some people might have that you know maybe we shouldn't use economic frameworks mm. because we might not quite accurately represent the value people have for these things. Um, in, in my honours year, I, I did a research project where we looked at the value of seascapes in Durian Bay. Oh. And um, obviously being an honours project, um, you know, probably wasn't quite best practice methodology, but we constructed this really hypothetical scenario, which was that we were going to put a wind farm in the sand dunes or out in the ocean and that people could opt to pay some sort of amount of money to move that inland so that it didn't disrupt their beautiful ocean view. Uh, and, you know, so that, that all went fine. But sitting in the pub afterwards, talking to some of the locals, they actually believed the hypothetical scenario a bit too well and they actually thought that the government was going to come in and <laughs> construct these wind turbines <laughs> and that that was definitely oh, happening. No. And, um, you know, I think that they, they got a little bit, you know, of a stronger view about that than what pints of beer that they had. So uh, I couldn't convince them otherwise. And so I think sometimes the concern that people have for, I guess, the hypothetical nature of some of these surveys is maybe a bit overstated because <laughs> I, I found it hard to convince them it was hypothetical. Even though you came up with it. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was entirely hypothetical wow. in this case. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah, Thank funny. you so much for coming on the podcast today. That was fascinating. No worries. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia on Wadjuk country.